Section eight of Willemville Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Willemville Stories by Stephen Crane. The Knife. Part one. Cy Bryant's place was on the shore of the lake, and his garden patch, shielded from the north by a bold little promontory and a higher ridge inland, was accounted the most successful and surprising in all Willemville Township. One afternoon Cy was working in the garden patch when Dr. Trescott's man, Peter Washington, came trudging slowly along the road, observing nature. He scanned the white man's fine agricultural results. "'Take your eye off them there melons, you rascal,' said Cy placidly. The negro's face widened in a grin of delight. "'Well, Mr. Bryant, I reckon I ain't only make myself covetous or lookin' at dem yer melums, sure enough. Dey certainly is grand." "'That's all right,' responded Cy, with affected bitterness of spirit. "'That's all right. Just don't you admire em too much, that's all.' Peter chuckled and chuckled. "'My lord, Mr. Bryant, you-you don't think I'm going come prowlin' in dish yer garden?' "'No, I know you ain't,' said Cy with solemnity, "'because if you did I'd shoot you so full of holes you couldn't tell yourself from a sponge.' "'Um, no, sir. No, sir. I don't reckon you'll get chance at Pete, Mr. Bryant. No, sir. I'll take and run long and rob her bank for I'll come foolishin' around your garden, Miss Bryant.' Bryant, gnarled and strong as an old tree, leaned on his hoe and laughed a Yankee laugh. His mouth remained tightly closed but the sinister lines which ran from the sides of his nose to the meetings of his lips developed to form a comic oval, and he emitted a series of grunts while his eyes gleamed merrily and his shoulders shook. Pete, on the contrary, threw back his head and guffawed thunderously. The effete joke in regard to an American negro's fondness for watermelons was still an admirable pleasantry to them, and this was not the first time they had engaged in badinage over it. In fact, this venerable survival had formed between them a friendship of casual roadside quality. Afterwards Peter went on up the road. He continued to chuckle until he was far away. He was going to pay a visit to old Alec Williams, a negro who lived with a large family in a hut clinging to the side of a mountain. The scattered colony of negroes which hovered near Willemville was of interesting origin, being the result of some contrabands who had drifted as far north as Willemville during the great Civil War. The descendants of these adventurers were mainly conspicuous for their bewildering number, and the facility which they possessed for adding even to this number. Speaking, for example, of the Jacksons, one couldn't hurl a stone into the hills about Willemville without having it land on the roof of a hut full of Jacksons. The town reaped little in labor from these curious suburbs. There were a few men who came in regularly to work in gardens, to drive teams, to care for horses, and there were a few women who came in to cook or to wash. These latter had usually drunken husbands. In the main the colony loafed in high spirits, and the industrious minority gained no direct honor from their fellows, unless they spent their earnings on raiment, in which case they were naturally treated with distinction. On the whole, the hardships of these people were the wind, the rain, the snow, and any other physical difficulties which they could cultivate. About twice a year the lady philanthropists of Willemville went up against them, and came away poorer in goods, but rich in complacence. 
After one of these attacks the colony would preserve a comic air of rectitude for two days, and then relapse again to the genial irresponsibility of a crew of monkeys. Peter Washington was one of the industrious class who occupied a position of distinction, for he surely spent his money on personal decoration. On occasion he could dress better than the mayor of Willemville himself, or at least in more colors, which was the main thing to the minds of his admirers. His ideal had been the late gallant Henry Johnson, whose conquests in Watermelon Alley, as well as in the hill shanties, had proved him the equal, if not the superior, of any Pullman car porter in the country. Perhaps Peter had too much Virginia laziness and humor in him to be a wholly adequate successor to the fastidious Henry Johnson, but at any rate he admired his memory so attentively as to be openly termed a dude by envious people. On this afternoon he was going to call on old Alec Williams, because Alec's eldest girl was just turned seventeen, and to Peter's mind was a triumph of beauty. He was not wearing his best clothes, because on his last visit Alec's half-breed hound Susie had taken occasion to forcefully extract a quite large and valuable part of the visitor's trousers. When Peter arrived at the end of the rocky field which contained old Alec's shanty, he stooped and provided himself with several large stones. Weighing them carefully in his hand, and finally continuing his journey with three stones of about eight ounces each. When he was near the house, three gaunt hounds, Rover and Carlo and Susie, came sweeping down upon him. His impression was that they were going to climb him as if he were a tree, but at the critical moment they swerved and went growling and snapping around him, their heads low, their eyes malignant. The afternoon caller waited until Susie presented her side to him, then he heaved one of his eight-ounce rocks. When it landed, her hollow ribs gave forth a drum-like sound and she was knocked sprawling her legs in the air. The other hounds at once fled in terror, and she followed as soon as she was able, yelping at the top of her lungs. The afternoon caller resumed his march. At the wild expressions of Susie's anguish old Alec had flung open the door and come hastily into the sunshine. "'Yeah, you Suze, come along out of dat now. What for you? Oh, how do you do, Mist Washington? How do?' How do, Mist Williams? I done found it necessary for to damn near kill dish yer dog o' yourn, Mist Williams. Come in, come in, Mist Washington. Dog no count, Mist Washington. Then he turned to address the unfortunate animal. Hut, did it? Hut. Pears like you gwine done some seance by the time somebody break your back. Pears like I gwine club yer into your frazzle before you find out some seance. Gwine, way from yer. As the old man and his guest entered the shanty, a body of black children spread out in crescent-shaped formation, and observed Peter with awe. Fat old Mrs. Williams greeted him turbulently, while the eldest girl Molly lurked in a corner and giggled with finished imbecility, gazing at the visitor with eyes that were shy and bold by turns. She seemed at times absurdly overconfident, at times foolishly afraid, but her giggle consistently endured. It was a giggle on which an irascible but right-minded judge would have ordered her forthwith to be buried alive. Amid a great deal of hospitable gabbling, Peter was conducted to the best chair out of the three that the house contained. Enthroned therein, he made himself charming in talk to the old people, who beamed upon him joyously. As for Molly, he affected to be unaware of her existence. 
This may have been a method for entrapping the sentimental interest of that young gazelle, or it may be that the giggle had worked upon him. He was absolutely fascinating to the old people. They could talk like rotary snowploughs, and he gave them every chance while his face was illumined with appreciation. They pressed him to stay for supper, and he consented, after a glance at the pot on the stove which was too furtive to be noted. During the meal old Alec recounted the high state of Judge Oglethorpe's kitchen-garden, which Alec said was due to his unremitting industry and fine intelligence. Alec was a gardener, whenever impending starvation forced him to cease temporarily from being a lily of the field. "'Mist Bryant, he certainly got a grand garden,' observed Peter. "'Dat so, dat so, Mist Washington,' assented Alec. "'He got fine garden.' "'Seems like I never did see such melums, big as her barrel, layin' there. I don't reckon anybody in this year county can hold it with Mist Bryant when it comes to der melons.' "'That's so, Mist Washington.' They did not talk of watermelons until their heads held nothing else, as the phrase goes. But they talked of watermelons until, when Peter started for home that night, over a lonely road, they held a certain dominant position in his mind. Alec had come with him as far as the fence, in order to protect him from possible attack by the mongrels. There they had cheerfully parted, two honest men. The night was dark and heavy with moisture. Peter found it uncomfortable to walk rapidly. He merely loitered on the road. When opposite Cy Bryant's place, he paused and looked over the fence into the garden. He imagined he could see the form of a huge melon lying in dim stateliness not ten yards away. He looked at the Bryant house. Two windows downstairs were lighted. The Bryants kept no dog, old Cy's favorite child having once been bitten by a dog and having since died within that year of pneumonia. Peering over the fence, Peter fancied that if any low-minded night-prowler should happen to note the melon, he would not find it difficult to possess himself of it. This person would merely wait until the lights were out in the house, and the people presumably asleep. Then he would climb the fence, reach the melon in a few strides, sever the stem with his ready knife, and in a trice be back in the road with his prize. There need be no noise and after all the house was some distance. Selecting a smooth bit of turf, Peter took a seat by the roadside. From time to time he glanced at the lighted window. Part Two. When Peter and Alec had said good-bye, the old man turned back in the rocky field and shaped a slow course towards that high dim light, which marked the little window of his shanty. It would be incorrect to say that Alec could think of nothing but watermelons. But it was true that Cy Bryant's watermelon patch occupied a certain conspicuous position in his thoughts. He sighed. He almost wished that he was a conscienceless pickaninny instead of being one of the most ornate, solemn, and look-at-me-sinner deacons that ever graced the handle of a collection-basket. At this time it made him quite sad to reflect upon his granite integrity. A weaker man might perhaps bow his moral head to the temptation but for him such a fall was impossible. He was a prince of the church, and if he had been nine princes of the church he could not have been more proud. In fact, religion was to the old man a sort of personal dignity. And he was on Sundays so obtrusively good that you could see his sanctity through a door. He forced it on you until you would have felt its influence even in a forecastle. It was clear in his mind that he must put watermelon thoughts from him and after a moment he told himself, with much ostentation, that he had done so. 
but it was cooler under the sky than in the shanty, and as he was not sleepy he decided to take a stroll down to Cy Bryant's place and look at the melons from a pinnacle of spotless innocence. Reaching the road he paused to listen. It would not do to let Peter hear him, because that graceless rapscallion would probably misunderstand him. But assuring himself that Peter was well on his way, he set out, walking briskly, until he was within four hundred yards of Bryant's place. Here he went to the side of the road, and walked thereafter on the damp, yielding turf. He made no sound. He did not go on to that point in the main road which was directly opposite the watermelon patch. He did not wish to have his ascetic contemplation disturbed by some chance wayfarer. He turned off along a short lane which led to Cy Bryant's barn. Here he reached a place where he could see, over the fence, the faint shapes of the melons. Alec was affected. The house was some distance away, there was no dog, and doubtless the Bryants would soon extinguish their lights and go to bed. Then some poor lost lamb of sin might come and scale the fence, reach a melon in a moment, sever the stem with his ready knife, and in a trice be back in the road with his prize. And this poor lost lamb of sin might even be a bishop, but no one would ever know it. Alec singled out with his eye a very large melon, and thought that the lamb would prove his judgment if he took that one. He found a soft place in the grass, and arranged himself comfortably. He watched the lights in the windows. Part Three. It seemed to Peter Washington that the Bryants absolutely consulted their own wishes in regard to the time for retiring. But at last he saw the lighted windows fade briskly from left to right, and after a moment a window on the second floor blazed out against the darkness. Cy was going to bed. In five minutes this window abruptly vanished, and all the world was night. Peter spent the ensuing quarter-hour in no mental debate. His mind was fixed. He was here, and the melon was there. He would have it. But an idea of being caught appalled him. He thought of his position. He was the beau of his community, honored right and left. He pictured the consternation of his friends and the cheers of his enemies if the hands of the redoubtable Cy Bryant should grip him in his shame. He arose, and going to the fence, listened. No sound broke the stillness save the rhythmical incessant clicking of myriad insects, and the guttural chanting of the frogs in the reeds at the lakeside. Moved by sudden decision, he climbed the fence, and crept silently and swiftly down upon the melon. His open knife was in his hand. There was the melon, cool, fair to see, as pompous in its fatness as the cook in a monastery. Peter put out a hand to steady it while he cut the stem. But at the instant he was aware that a black form had dropped over the fence lining the lane in front of him, and was coming stealthily towards him. In a palsy of terror he dropped flat upon the ground, not having strength enough to run away. The next moment he was looking into the amazed and agonized face of old Alec Williams. There was a moment of loaded silence, and then Peter was overcome by a mad inspiration. He suddenly dropped his knife and leaped upon Alec. "'I gotcha!' he hissed. "'I gotcha! I gotcha!' The old man sank down limp as rags. "'I gotcha! I gotcha! Steal Mist Bryant's melums, hey?' Alec, in a low voice, began to beg. "'Oh, Mist Peter Washington, don't go for to be too hot on de old man. I never come here for steal em. Deed I didn't, Mist Washington. 
come ye just for ter feel em oh please mist washington come along out o yer you old rip said peter and don't tremble on dese ere beds i gwine put you where you won't catch cold without difficulty he tumbled the whining aleck over the fence to the roadway and followed him with sheriff-like expedition he took him by the scruff come along deacon i reckon i gwine put you where you can pray deacon come along deacon the emphasis and reiteration of his layman's title in the church produced a deadly effect upon aleck he felt to his marrow the heinous crime into which this treacherous night had betrayed him as peter marched his prisoner up the road toward the mouth of the lane he continued his remarks come along deacon nev did see er man so anxious like about a melon patch deacon seems like you just must a seen em growin and feel em deacon Mist Bryant, he'll be surprised, Deacon, finding out you come for to feel his melums. Come along, Deacon. Mist Bryant, he expectin' some old rip like you come soon. They had almost reached the lane when Alex Kerr Susie, who had followed her master, approached in the silence which attends dangerous dogs, and seeing indications of what she took to be war, she appended herself swiftly but firmly to the calf of Peter's left leg. The melee was short but spirited. Alec had no wish to have his dog complicate his already serious misfortunes, and went manfully to the defense of his captor. He procured a large stone, and by beating this with both hands down upon the resounding skull of the animal, he induced her to quit her grip. Breathing heavily, Peter dropped into the long grass at the roadside. He said nothing. "'Mist Washington,' said Alec at last in a quavering voice, "'I reckon I gone wait year to see what you gone do to me.' whereupon peter passed into a spasmodic state in which he rolled to and fro and shook mist washington i hope dis yer dog ain't gone and give you fitzes peter sat up suddenly no she ain't he answered but she gin me a big skeer and for your assistance with a cobblestone mist williams i tell you what i gwine do i tell you what i gwine do he waited an impressive moment i gwine lease you old aleck trembled like a little bush in a wind mist washington quoth peter deliberately i gwine lease you the old man was filled with a desire to negotiate this statement at once but he felt the necessity of carrying off the event without an appearance of haste yes sir thank you sir thank you mist washington i reckon i ramble home presently he waited an interval and then dubiously said good evening mist washington Good evening, Deacon. Don't come foolin' round feelin' no melums, and I say truth. Good evening, Deacon. Alec took off his hat and made three profound bows. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Peter underwent another severe spasm, but the old man walked off towards his home with a humble and contrite heart. Part four. The next morning, Alec proceeded from his shanty under the complete but customary illusion that he was going to work. He trudged manfully along until he reached the vicinity of Cy Bryant's place. Then, by stages, he relapsed into a slink. He was passing the garden patch under full steam when, at some distance ahead of him, he saw Cy Bryant leaning casually on the garden fence. "'Good morning, Alec.' "'Good morning, Mr. Bryant,' answered Alec, with a new deference. He was marching on when he was halted by a word. "'Alec!' He stopped. Yes, sir. I found a knife this morning in the road. 
drawled Cy. "'And I thought maybe it was yourn.' Improved in mind by this divergence from the direct line of attack, Alex stepped up easily to look at the knife. "'No, sir,' he said, scanning it as it lay in Cy's palm, while the cold steel-blue eyes of the white man looked down into his stomach. "'Tain't no knife for mine.' But he knew the knife. He knew it as if it had been his mother. And at the same moment a spark flashed through his head, and made wise his understanding. He knew everything. "'Tain't much of a knife, Mr. Bryant,' he said, deprecatingly. "'Tain't much of a knife, I know that,' cried Cy in sudden heat. "'But I found it this morning in my watermelon patch, here.' "'Watermelon patch!' yelled Alec, not astounded. "'Yes, in my watermelon patch,' sneered Cy. "'And I think you know something about it, too.' "'Me?' cried Alec. "'Me?' "'Yes, you,' said Cy, with icy ferocity. "'Yes, you.' He had become convinced that Alec was not in any way guilty, but he was certain that the old man knew the owner of the knife, and so he pressed him at first on criminal lines. "'Alec, you might as well own up now. You've been meddling with my watermelons.' "'Me?' cried Alec again. "'Yas, my knife. I done carry it for years.' Bryant changed his ways. "'Look here, Alec,' he said confidentially. "'I know you, and you know me, and there ain't no use in any more skirmishing.' I know that you know whose knife that is. Now whose is it?" This challenge was so formidable in character that Alec temporarily quailed and began to stammer. Uh, now, Mr. Bryant, you—you you friend of mine." "'I know I'm a friend of yours. But,' said Bryant inexorably, "'who owns this knife?' Alec gathered unto himself some remnants of dignity, and spoke with reproach. "'Mr. Bryant!' "'This yer knife ain't mine.' "'No,' said Bryant, "'it ain't. But you know who it belongs to. And I want you to tell me, quick.' "'Well, Miss Bryant,' answered Alec, scratching his wool, "'I won't say as I do know who belongs to this yer knife, and I won't say as I don't.' Bryant again laughed his Yankee laugh, but this time there was little humour in it. It was dangerous. Alec, seeing that he had gotten himself into hot water by the fine diplomacy of his last sentence, immediately began to flounder and totally submerge himself. "'No, Mist Bryant,' he repeated. "'I won't say as I do know who belongs to this yer knife, and I won't say as I don't.' And he began to parrot this fatal sentence again and again. It seemed wound about his tongue. He could not rid himself of it. Its very power to make trouble for him seemed to originate the mysterious Afric reason for its repetition. "'Is he a very close friend of yourn?' said Bryant softly. "'For friend?' stuttered Alec. He appeared to weigh this question with much care. "'Well, seems like he was her friend, and then again it seems like he—' "'It seems like he wasn't?' asked Bryant. "'Yes, sir. Just so, just so,' cried Alec. Sometimes it seems like he wasn't. Then again he stopped for profound meditation. The patience of the white man seemed inexhaustible. At length his low and oily voice broke the stillness. Oh, well, of course, if he's a friend of yourn, Alec, you know I wouldn't want to make no trouble for a friend of yourn. Yes, sir, cried the negro at once. He's a friend of mine. He is dat. Well, then, it seems as if about the only thing to do is for you to tell me his name— so's I can send him his knife, and that's all there is to it." 
Alec took off his hat, and in perplexity ran his hand over his wool. He studied the ground, but several times he raised his eyes to take a sly peep at the imperturbable visage of the white man. "'Yes, Mr. Bryant, I reckon that's about all that can be done. I gwine tell you who belongs to dish ere knife.' "'Of course,' said the smooth Bryant, "'it ain't a very nice thing to have to do, but—' "'No, sir,' cried Alec brightly. "'I'm going to tell you, Mist Bryant. I'm going to tell you about that knife, Mist Bryant,' he asked solemnly. "'Does you know who belongs to that knife?' "'No, I—well, I gwine tell. I gwine tell who, Mr. Bryant.' The old man drew himself to a stately pose and held forth his arm. "'I gwine tell who, Mist Bryant.' Dish your knife belongs to Sam Jackson. Bryant was startled into indignation. Who in hell is Sam Jackson? he growled. He's a nigger, said Alec impressively, and he works in a lumber yard up here in Oswego. End of part four and end of the knife.